I think I went from terror and anguish and horror and devastation pretty quickly into this sort of almost meditative state of how to exist in this liminal space that was the edge of life um, with my daughter, who I was supposed to have all of this time with, and the day-to-day of how to just get through every day. And so sort of, I think pretty quickly we transitioned into having one foot in the world of the living and one foot in the world of the dead. And we tried to walk that path as graciously as we could. And the way we did that was we just listened to her, even though she couldn't speak a word. We could tell based on how comfortable she was in someone's arms or how big her eyes got or how deep her laugh was, whether or not we were parenting her in a way that was doing her justice. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron, the Day of Remembrance. We consider the past, its triumphs and failures, and think about what we did and how we might do it better. We also know that God remembers us, considers our lives, and makes an accounting of what we've done well and what we have not done as well as we should. Remembrance means more than just looking back. It means that the past is part of the present, that the people who are no longer with us continue to affect us and, in a certain way, guide us. William Faulkner famously wrote, The past is never dead. It's not even past. But to take this idea of the past being alive in the present seriously, even literally, we can also say that our current lives live in future remembrance, too. The actions we undertake and the decisions we make today are affecting the future in ways we can't anticipate. We can only choose the path that seems most reasonable. We don't know where it will lead, but we need to do our best so that when we do look back, or others look back, or most crucially, when God looks at our choices— we can be assured that we did the best we could given the circumstances, regardless of the outcome. And rest assured, the things that we do today will affect the future, and our present live reality is part of the day of remembrance of future generations. So the present moment contains the past and the future, not just as memories and anticipation, but as a living reality. As Rob Soloveitchik wrote about our Jewish time consciousness in his essay, Confrontation, it is an exciting story that we tell them. It is the story of a teaching community which cuts across the ages, encompassing people who lived millennia ago, who made their contribution to the Knesset Israel and have left the stage. We also tell them the story of people who, at some point in the distant future, will enter the historical stage. Our story unites countless generations, present, past, and future merge into one great experience. Contrary to the popular medieval adage, our story tells of a glorious past that is still real because it has not vanished a future which is already here, and a creative present replete with opportunity and challenge. It is a privilege and a pleasure to belong to such a prayerful, charitable, teaching community which feels the breath of eternity. All this is part of our Rosh Hashanah experience. Today's episode is not about Rosh Hashanah in any overt way, but Myra Sachs' story represents one of the most powerful Rosh Hashanah stories I have ever heard. Myra and her husband Matt had a beautiful little girl named Chavilev. And in her words, we lost our firstborn daughter, Chavilev Goldstein, on January 20th, 2021, at 9.04 a.m. She died peacefully in our bed, in our arms. She died from a cruel disease called Tay-Sachs that strips your mind and body of every function over 12 to 18 months. 
Javi was two years, four months, and 16 days old when she died. Myra wrote a story for the Boston Globe magazine called Holding Javi, and as painful and tragic as her story is, it's also profoundly inspiring and uplifting. It combines beauty and sadness, laughter and grief, and I think it offers such important lessons that we all need to learn before Rosh Hashanah and always. Myra Sack earned a BA in government with All-American Honors in 2010 from Dartmouth College, where she captained the women's soccer team and co-founded Athletes United, a student-led initiative to connect local children with Dartmouth student-athletes through a cost-free sports league and holistic mentoring program. A postgraduate fellowship allowed her to launch the Latin American arm of Soccer Without Borders in Grenada, Nicaragua. Myra's lifelong passion for sports and social justice brought her to Squash Busters Incorporated in Boston in 2013. Since then, she has served in a variety of roles at this pioneer organization for the urban squash and education movement that reaches thousands of young people around the world through long-term extracurricular squash, academic, and social-emotional programming. She is currently Squash Busters' senior advisor and previously the chief program and strategy officer, focusing on strategic growth and impact, curriculum creation, staff development, and cross-site program quality. She was awarded an MBA in Social Impact from Boston University in 2018. Myra has been inducted into the Lower Marion High School Hall of Fame in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, where she serves as a board member. Myra's life changed when her first daughter, Javi Lev Goldstein, was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs, a terminal neurodegenerative disorder, on December 17, 2019. Javi passed away on January 20, 2021. In 2021, Myra and Matt began supporting Courageous Parents Network, a Boston-based nonprofit organization and educational platform that orients, empowers, and accompanies families and providers caring for children with serious illnesses. Myra is also trained as a Certified Compassionate Bereavement Care Facilitator by Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, the founding director of Sela Care Farm and the Miss Foundation, and began writing a memoir to share the story of Javi's illness and passing and the aftermath. Myra's writing focuses on the beauty and pain that can be found in loss, and the power of community to sustain and uplift those who are suffering. Her first article on her experience, A Mother's Letter on the Passing of Her Young Daughter, was published on Upworthy.com in January 2022 and quickly reached over 2.7 million viewers. Myra Sack, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's a tragic privilege to be here with you. Can you start our conversation by telling us Javi's story? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Javi's story began actually when I met my husband. Um, we met in 2006. I was a soccer player at college and uh, played with his younger sister um, and thus began sort of a long friendship that culminated in our marriage on September 4th, 2016. Javi was born two years later on our anniversary, um, September 4th, 2018. Um, and prior to starting a family, getting pregnant with Javi. We sought genetic counseling uh, because we are both Ashkenazi Jewish and, and recognized and appreciated the importance of genetic screening. I learned that I was a carrier for Tay-Sachs. Um, and so Matt, my husband, sought uh, testing as well. He was told that he was not a carrier after um, he underwent his carrier screening. And we learned much later that um, that was due to an erroneous order that the that Matt's ordering physician made. So Javi's story began 
on September 4th, 2018. She was born at Brigham and Women's Hospital um, in Boston. She was beautiful. She was strong. She had the biggest eyes. Her name came to us just a week or so before she was born. I was on some website and um, loved the root of the name, um, obviously high, and saw on some list that Javi was a nickname for Hava. And um, it felt playful and it felt beautiful. And obviously there was real meaning and essence to it. And so um, Javi was her name and she was named after my grandfather, Harold. Um, and Lev, which is heart, um, was for my grandmother, Loretta. Um, so Javi Lev was born and uh, she spent the first year of her life um, sort of doing all the normal things, it seemed. Um, dealing with parents who were first timers, trying to figure out how to get her to sleep and when she should eat solid food and, um, you know, whether she could go play with these people and, you know, nap schedules and all the sort of normal stuff. Um, at around a year, we went to her pediatrician, her one year appointment with her pediatrician who told us that um, she was surprised that Javi wasn't making the kind of progress that she would have expected at a year and said that, you know, at this point she was going to make a developmental delay diagnosis and she wanted us to engage some early intervention specialists and she would refer us to neurology just to be safe, but that, you know, 99% of the time there's no neurological issue. So being an athlete and being sort of a type A person, we put Javi into all sorts of early intervention workouts. So she was basically doing two a day sessions in the morning. She would have physical therapy in the afternoon. She'd have occupational therapy. And um, in hindsight, we were driving her crazy. Uh, so we did that for three months and she wasn't making progress. And in fact, she started to regress a little bit. Our first neurologist told us that he sees thousands of, of children and Javi is not a child with a life-limiting illness, that she's just taking her time making progress. And I think that's probably because Hav charmed the pants off of this neurologist at, at our appointment. She was giggling and playing with bubbles and um, her eyes are so big and bold that I think he couldn't have imagined anything other than a healthy child. Fast forward a few neurologist visits and we were sitting with a neurogeneticist at Boston Children's who noticed Javi's startle, which is characteristic of Tay-Sachs. It's a symptom that's characteristic of Tay-Sachs. What do you mean he noticed her startle? He, um, Matt zipped his uh, jacket. It was the winter and Javi sort of startled. Um, she had a startle reflex and she had startled um, on and off sort of throughout her life. And we raised this with the pediatrician and the pediatrician said, ah, it might just be, you know, some, some children have um, really acute hearing. And so maybe she's just, that's probably what it is. Uh, don't worry about it. But Matt would sometimes sniffle in the kitchen. Like he'd do, do this. And I would be breastfeeding Javi in her bedroom and she would startle. Um, so she was, uh, clearly, in hindsight, there was something else going on. Anyway, this doctor looked at us and said, have you have you been tested for Tay-Sachs? And Matt and I looked at each other and sort of scoffed and said, 
whatever is going on, Javi does not have Tay-Sachs. We ruled that out before she was even an idea. And he said, well, based on my clinical exam, based on where she is developmentally, um, I'm concerned enough that I would like to do a test. Um, so Javi was due to get an MRI to understand what was going on. And he wanted to take a blood draw during her MRI, at which point we learned that she did in fact have Tay-Sachs and thus um, started this sort of investigation about what could have possibly happened. Um, that was sort of Javi's life pre-diagnosis and, and, and her diagnosis day was December 17th, 2019, when we learned that we were going to lose her. Um, and the problem was Matt's test had been mistaken, right? Yeah. That was the issue. Yeah, he was... Um, his enzyme test, and this is maybe too 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 much detail, but his en enzyme test came back, and there was concern that he was a carrier. It was ambiguous enough that we were referred to genetics, who suggested recommended that we um, do a confirmatory test, a full and a full gene sequence. And so we thought that that was the test that uh, the ordering physician was making. Turns out the, the physician ordered only the five to seven mutations um, and not the full gene sequencing. He just simply ordered the wrong test. Um, and so when we learned that you know, the results came back, physician said, you guys are in the clear. Good luck starting a family. Sorry for any unnecessary worry. Um, and then we learned later what what happened. Once you received Javi's diagnosis, what was your response to that? I mean, obviously that's the worst possible news a human being can hear. What did you and Matt do? Matt came back. We, we were concerned enough after the doctor flagged this for us um, that I started sort of those deepest, darkest fears started to creep into my mind that something horrific was going to reveal itself, although I still didn't think that it could be Tay-Sachs. Um, and when we got the call from the physician that, that it was in fact Tay-Sachs, I remember screaming in this pitch and tone that um, still sometimes scares me today when I can go back to that moment. Um, so in the, in the exact moment, it was sort of this out-of-body experience that is a moment in which you're not really sure it's real. And then I think pretty quickly after that, I went and found Hav and held her. And, um, and basically for the next 13 months of her life, we oriented our entire being around making sure she was safe and comfortable and loved and could see as much of the world as we could possibly show her. And I think I went from terror and anguish and horror and devastation pretty quickly into this sort of almost meditative state of how to exist in this liminal space that was the edge of life um, with my daughter, who I was supposed to have all of this time with. And the day-to-day -day of how to just get through every day. And so sort of, I think pretty quickly we transitioned into having one foot in the world of the living and one foot in the world of the dead. And we tried to walk that path 
as graciously as we could. And the way we did that was we just listened to her, even though she couldn't speak a word. We could tell based on how comfortable she was in someone's arms or how big her eyes got or how deep her laugh was, whether or not we were parenting her in a way that was doing her justice. And um, practically, we we started what we called Shabirth Days. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that really was something amazing. <laughs> so most children with Tay-Sachs, with infantile Tay-Sachs, don't crawl. Um, they're not capable of crawling. Javi only crawled for Hala. Um, <laughs> and so during that horrific time where we were putting her through these two-a-day physical therapy, occupational therapy sessions, I would put a little piece of challah on our living room rug. And during the exercises, I would use the challah as incentive for Javi to make progress. And she did. And at the time we thought it was, you know, we laughed, we said, oh, she's a carb, she's a carb girl. She just loves her carbs. Um, and we got the challah from Rosenfeld's, which is in Newton. And so I sort of thought about her favorite food and and um, that reality and the fact that she wasn't going to have more than two birthdays, that she was going to have one more birthday. And um, that didn't feel okay for me um, as her mom. I didn't, that, that wasn't going to work one more birthday. I, it didn't make sense to me. Um, and so literally a day or so after her diagnosis, Matt and I were on a walk together and we we sort of said like what do we do with this how do we live how do we get through our days in this time and this idea of combining a birthday that typically happens on an annual basis and the sabbath which happens every friday evening obviously um came to me and i said what if we did these shabbat birthdays and it's unclear who came up, whether it was Matt or me, whether which one of us said, let's call it a Shabbat day. Um, but we said, let's call this a Shabbat day. And every Friday, let's have a sort of uh, the most sacred Shabbat that we could ever imagine. And we'll have challah and we'll have everyone who could possibly love and hold Javi with us. And we won't sugarcoat this. This won't be some superficial celebration. It can't be, but it'll be this beautifully rich ritual that involves a whole lot of tears, music that moves us, us to tears. Only people who can really appreciate her beauty can come. And, um, and then we'll write about them. And thus sort of begun these birthdays. Um, and we ended up having 57 of them. Each one was more beautiful and more painful than the next. Um, it was both of those things at the same time. Um, we had them, many of them in our home in Jamaica Plain, where she was supposed to grow up. We had some of them on the California coast, some of them out in Tamales Bay, which is in Northern California. And then her last one, just a few days before she died uh, in my arms here at her home. And uh, they were the most, uh, I think had we not done that, my life would be really, really different now. It would be lacking a whole lot of these exquisite memories and moments with her that 
really are the only things that keep us going as it relates to to how we um, honor and integrate her. Um, when we went to our rabbi, um, just a local rabbi, and told her this idea about she birthdays, um, which was three days after Javi's diagnosis, we saw this particular rabbi because we were we were um, seeking spiritual guidance and uh, someone recommended this rabbi. And so we sat in her office and for the most part, it was a beautiful, safe visit. But when we shared this concept of a birthday, she really struggled with it. And she said, you know, I don't think that's a good idea because how are you going to live on Fridays when Javi's not here? What's it going to feel like if you have these celebrations during her life and then you have to experience the absence of them when she's gone? I, I know that you, you wrote about, I'm not sure the right word is offended, mm-hmm. but you were really upset that she said that. And can you explain why that upset you so much? She obviously meant well. Yeah. What about it tore you apart? Of course. I think um, I think maybe at the root of it is that we live in sort of a fear-based society when it comes to understanding grief and loss. And oftentimes we the messages we get are are about this fear of um, what is it going to be like when or how could we possibly imagine that instead of sort of leaning into love. And um, that's not malicious. It's not, there's no malintent there, but it's fearful. And I think at the, at the essence of it is that maybe my soul was somehow offended because thinking about life without Javi in that moment was not how I wanted to orient. I wanted to orient towards her. I wanted to turn towards her now and figure out how to honor and cherish her now because she's here and her life is of value. And we wanted to do that in the fullest way, not in a, not in a limited way. And it felt like what this rabbi was telling us was to sort of shrink her life, um, was to contract in some way, because that would somehow make life without her easier. And um, that felt unfair as her mom, like as someone who wanted to get, um, give my daughter everything she deserved and um, be a part of that beauty in some way. Yeah. Myra, one of the things that I keep hearing, and also when I read a few things that you wrote, is continually coming out how you were fully trying to live with joy and sadness at the same time. You weren't trying to have one or the other, but to experience both the beauty and the grief or pain simultaneously, or not even simultaneously, integrated together. Can I ask you what that was like, what the experience is like to have them both at the same time? Because usually most people think you have to have one or the other, not both. Yeah. It definitely makes small talk really hard. Like you can't exist in sort of this... um, mundane, superficial, um, day-to-day life that I think oftentimes we fall into. Um, 
And we fall into that because we have to. It's in some ways, it's exhausting to live in this fullness all the time at this edge of what is most important and precious. That takes a tremendous amount of energy, which it did and does. But what it was like when Javi was here is sort of that like the lights were turned on as bright as they possibly could be or as dark as they possibly could be. There was no dimmer. There was no like, you know, you weren't ever really in this sort of in-between. And that makes things like that makes you experience things that maybe you didn't notice before in in this way that sort of makes the mundane actually kind of magical. So going for a walk with Javi on this little loop that I used to do in Jamaica Plain, all of a sudden I noticed things like I noticed purple flowers that I had never seen before. I paid attention to how the light fell into the cracks on the sidewalks because Javi's eyes would follow light. She couldn't see, but she followed light, which I think is beautiful. Um, So all of a sudden this 20 minute walk that I used to do that felt totally non-holy felt holy. Um, And I think that that is something now that without her here is harder, takes more energy to, to access that. But at least I know I can, if I, if I can create the space for it in my mind and in my heart. Myra, I'm going to read back something which you wrote in your letter. You wrote a letter that you published to Javi on the anniversary, the first anniversary of her passing. And you wrote, Javi taught us that life can be even more beautiful and painful than we ever imagined. And when we live at the edge of that deepest beauty and deepest pain, then everything, our hearts, our worldview, our community, will deepen and expand. You mentioned now how it's a little bit more difficult, obviously now, at this time, to carry that with you. But in what ways are you able to carry that with you now and continue that experience with Javi in your current lives? Yeah. Um, We have two living children who are incredible gifts. Uh, Javi's younger sister, Kaya, who's two years and a few months now, and her infant brother, Ezra, who was born just a month ago on August 13th. And um, I think with them, we we live into this sacred space in times that maybe would feel burdensome or chaotic um, or exhausting. I think there is always this reminder. Um, we sort of can see Javi's eyes or feel her presence um, in moments at 5.05 in the morning when Kaya wakes up and she should sleep another 90 minutes and you know her diaper is off and she's naked and all the lights are on in her room and you know, there's this brief moment where I want to get angry and frustrated. And instead I like this incredible sense of gratitude and laughter comes over me, not always, um, but, but oftentimes, and I can like giggle for a moment. I can have that Javi giggle when I'm putting her diaper back on and trying to escort her back into her toddler bed. And I think that appreciation for life is real and vivid a lot. Um, and it comes through when I'm trying to be the best parent I can for, for Kaya and Ezra. Um, I also think that I am less ambitious in a way that is, uh, like I ambition. I think there's sort of, there's a 
there's an incredibly compelling component of ambition that makes us more productive. And then there's also a component of ambition that I think is like egocentric and um, that is about sort of me. And I used to care a lot more about my own climbing some kind of ladder of success. And now I care a lot more about how to exist for others and um, without the ego. And I think Javi gave that to me, like that we are just specs on this, in this universe and that it has to be about uh, it has to be about our service to others, not in a, um, not really in terms of what it gives back to us, but just in terms of whatever energy and light we're putting back into the universe. And obviously growing up, understanding Takun Olam and sort of being in a service oriented family, I think I thought I was operating with that sense of pureness, but now I think it feels different. It feels, it feels different. Myra, you just mentioned your daughter Kaya and your son Ezra. How are you planning to integrate Javi, so to speak, to allow her to be a presence in their lives as well? Yeah. Um, Javi's photos are everywhere um, in our home. Uh, Kaya recognizes her and says, can point to photographs and say, there's Javi, there's my sister Javi. We don't know what she thinks that that means. Uh, but first we're going to certainly make sure that Javi is physically a part of our home. She, um, we just made a difficult transition, but a beautiful one moving Javi's room downstairs, actually the room that I'm in right now. And Ezra is now in Javi's old bedroom. And that was, a uh, that was a difficult decision. Um, but ultimately we thought it was beautiful that Ezra and Javi could share this space since they'd never actually be physically in the same room together. And as long as we preserved a space for Javi in our home, it was okay that it was a different space. And maybe if she were here as the oldest sibling, she'd want to have moved downstairs and have some independence and space from her parents. So I think a physical presence for her in our home is one way that we'll ensure that Ezra and Kaya know her, know that she's a part of our family. We had some beautiful videos made where we can hear Javi's laughter and we can see moments that our family spent with her. There's a ton of images of Javi and Kaya being together, even though they only lived in the same space for six months. And so those videos will watch regularly and at least on her birthday um, and we'll invite Kaya and Ezra into that space. I uh, I write to Javi every day in a journal. I basically tell her about my day and the days obviously center around Kaya and Ezra. And so I, I will invite them to read those journals at some point in their lives. Um, and I think maybe sort of beyond any of those, I think we'll just invite them to to ask as many questions as they want to talk about her as often as they can and for us to do the same. And I think um, the reason why Shabirth days now in hindsight are so 
rich and important is because we also have this community of people who were witnesses to her life, who were a part of her biography. And so they too carry memories. And so all these people who are so important to us can also talk to Kaya and Ezra about Javi, um, which is rare given that she died at two years and four months and 16 days to have so many people who held her and felt her and, and know her. Um, and so I hope through them, Kaya and Ezra feel like their oldest sister is not only a part of them spiritually and cellularly, but a part of how they sort of go through their day-to-day lives. Myra, it's very interesting to me that you don't see closure. You don't seem to move forward or to move on. You're integrating Javi into your lives and the lives of your family. But you also wrote how your relationship with Javi has changed and will continue to change. So even though she's not there with you physically, your relationship evolves. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. I think parenting a a young child is so physical. You're changing diapers. If you're uh, breastfeeding, (laughs) um, you're bathing them, holding them. And of course, with a child with a life-limiting illness, that is dialed up to 10 because um, you are their whole way of really existing in any kind of physical space. And so at the most sort of practical level, that physical connection is gone and that's really hard. Um, and, And so I've had to move my way of being with her into a spiritual realm. And the way I do that is to actually bring her into new physical spaces that I'm experiencing in my mind and in my heart. So when I go to a new place, I take a moment to invite her into that space with me. And I don't do it for long and no one even notices that I'm doing it. Um, But I try to do that so that as I'm existing in my new life, um, that I feel like I can at least bring her with me, even though I can't feel and touch her. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, Sometimes I can feel like I really access her and sometimes I can't. And I just commit to to keep trying. Um, The other thing that I do is I mentioned, I I do write to her every day um, in a journal that I buy the same journal from the Brookline Booksmith here in Boston. Uh, I think I'm on my sixth journal now. Um, And each entry just starts with Dear Beauty. And then just like a very sort of stream of conscious um, reflection on the day. And sometimes those are like, this is what I did. This is what Kaya did. This is what Ezra did. And sometimes it's, this is how I'm feeling. And I really miss you. And I wish things were different. And that sort of daily, it's just really eight minutes. Um, But that sort of daily connection with her makes it feel like I still have a third child, which I, which I know I have. Um, But I think turning towards her, really turning towards her in an active way makes me feel like I can still parent her, even though I don't get to put her to bed or take her to preschool. Um, And so that's, that's been really important for me. 
I'm going to ask a really difficult question. Yeah. After Javi died, you said that you had had 57 Shah birthdays with her. That's a lot. That's a really full life in a sense, meaning for 57 weeks you were celebrating and crying and laughing every single week in a really intense way. How did you deal with the absence after that of of Javi, of course, but also that sense of doing these things with her and having those people around you when she wasn't there anymore physically? Yeah. Um, we, we continued to embrace that ritual. Um, and we did everything that we had been doing with her, um, without her, and felt the presence of her absence so strongly that for the first dozen or so after she was gone, the presence of her absence was so loud, was so palpable that as long as we let ourselves feel her, it was an equally powerful experience. Now it's harder. Now it's harder to access that, um, her presence. And now I have to turn towards looking at photos sometimes to listening to the song. We listen to You Should Be Here is a country song, a uh, country music song by Cole Swindell. We listen to it every Friday. And uh, I have to get into quiet more and try to go through my Rolodex of memories. And um, sometimes I choose certain like spaces to go to, I'll go to the cottage we stayed at for um, dozens of weeks with her. And I'll try to be really intentional about remembering a particular birthday and sort of transplant myself there. So I think sort of turning towards those moments of beautiful memories, although they are so painful, they are the only way I feel like I can really be okay because they get me not close enough, but they get me closer to her. And so I think the way we do it now is just continue to really turn towards memory. Um, and the, the word remember uh, I've come to appreciate is the, the prefix is re, which means again. And so Every time we remember, we bring that member of the family again and again and again back into our community. Every time we don't practice remembering or we dismember, dis means not, we are removing that member from a community in some way by not remembering them. And so that act of, of remembering is, is, I guess, the way we do it. Well, that is such a touching insight. I never heard that before, the idea of remembering someone in that way. I'm thinking this now. We're coming up close to Rosh Hashanah, which is the Day of Remembrance. It's a, definitely something I'm going to take with me as a new way of thinking about what that word means, what that concept of, in Hebrew, zikaron, or in English, remembrance means. That's beautiful. You mentioned a lot, Myra, the people who were with you. And I'm not going to say necessarily a support group. That's not necessarily what it is. Just people who loved Javi together with you. Maybe that's a better way to put it. You also had people with you who seemed to know how to act in ways that brought you comfort and brought you love. And for lack of a better term, they did the right thing. <laughs> I'm sure there are many people who don't know 
how to interact with people who are dealing with a diagnosis like Javi's or after a child dies, how to even respond to such a terrible tragedy. What would you tell people who have friends or loved ones who are going through something really, really difficult like this with a child, both when a diagnosis is given and also afterwards when they're remembering their child? What would you tell them? Yeah, maybe I'll start with the practical. There's a a book called Bearing the Unbearable um, by Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, who is now our grief counselor, thanks to my sister-in-law who basically stalked her and said, you have to, you have to talk with um, my siblings. Uh, But bearing the unbearable is a beautiful and practical and sacred guide to what it feels like to be someone who is in acute and traumatic grief. And what that book did for me and for Matt, I think, is it empowered us to trust our own feelings And then to educate the people in our closest circle about how we were feeling. And so I didn't feel like I had to hide the fact or be ashamed of the fact that I wanted and that I saw Javi as part of my life forever. I didn't want to have to, I, I knew that it didn't feel right to me that just because I could have other children, that somehow meant that this loss was any less significant. But I think until we are educated about how we're feeling and that those feelings are valid, um, it's hard to be a grieving person who is strong enough to tell someone who says something that is maybe not helpful, that it's not helpful. So the first thing I'd say is, for people who are grieving to trust your own feelings. Like, and as Walt Whitman says, I think when someone insults your soul, ignore them. And uh, that's a hard thing to do if you don't have that sort of education and language and literacy. I think for people who are trying to show up for those who are struggling, um, in addition to to reading really important texts like Bearing the Unbearable or like The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller. I think that making sure that we're watching out for language that is minimizing something that somehow minimizes a loss, like that example of, well, at least you can have other children, Um, language that avoids. So some people who don't say Javi's name that avoidant behavior is actually quite painful for someone who is, who's just lost or is losing um, a person that they love and language that is like colonizing that somehow takes my feelings and makes it takes my feelings away from me. So they're somehow in a better place or, Oh, well, at least you've grown so much. Look at this post-traumatic growth. Well, maybe that's true, but that's my that's mine to share with you. You don't need to take that from me. And instead turn towards language that honors and integrates them. So use their name. My family, I think I wrote about this, orders coffee under Javi's name and then takes a picture of the coffee cup or writes her name in the sand and takes a photo of it or remembers her on a weekly basis by sharing photographs or poems, that sort of dailiness keeps people in our lives in a way that for me says, Javi mattered to you and matters to you. And you, and you think of her 
And as a parent, I think that's kind of all you want for your children is for them to matter. So I think finding ways to honor and integrate is maybe, at least for us, the most powerful form of support. And um, you're right that our family and closest friends did that, I think, maybe in the most exquisite way possible. And uh, my brother once said to me that when when they all moved to Boston, um, they relocated for over a year and lived basically right down the street from us. And they, it was COVID, so they could all work remotely, uh, my brother and sister and their spouses. But I said to my brother, Jacob, you know, I'm just worried, like, are you putting your life on pause for us and for Javi? And he said, my life isn't on pause. This is my life. And um, that sort of full inhabitation, I think what um, Robert Stolaro, a psychoanalyst, calls emotional dwelling, that is such a gift to, to those of us who are, who are struggling. And I think it applies beyond loss, you know? Myra, I have to tell you, far be it for me to say, but I find it so painful, but at the same time inspiring to listen to the way that when Javi was alive, you maximized every moment with her. Shabertha is an example of that. You talked about taking a walk and seeing the purple of the flowers and the light that she would follow and the sense of, I don't know if the right sense is the sense of presence, but the sense of being really in the moment and making sure that you're living life to the fullest, so to speak, to give her everything you can. And, and the way that you've continued to do that afterwards, trying not to let that dissipate, but instead let that experience continue in your lives and let Javi continue to be a presence in your lives and feeling that meaningful pain and sorrow and beauty all at the same time. It just really, really touched me. And as I was getting ready for this interview, I was walking around with a lump in my throat and I told my wife, I'm not sure, mm. I'm not sure how I'm going to do, but I really want to thank you because you have really provided me with a lot, a lot. And, and I'm sure the listeners will feel the same way. So thank you so much for talking with me today. No, thank you. I really appreciate the space. So thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. 
Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>